Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Betsy Ten Boom, Promise of God, by Mike Evans, with permission from Time Worthy Books, and we are on Chapter 4. Every day I spent with Garrett and Marguerite began just as it did at home with Papa and Mama. We gathered at the table for breakfast, almost always breaded with jam, after which Garrett read a section from the Bible usually a chapter from the book we read the previous day. Then we prayed. If we were all together at noon and when we gathered at night for supper, we followed the same routine. Part of the morning prayer each day was devoted to praying for the peace of Jerusalem and blessing for the Jews, a practice begun by my grandfather, Garrett's uncle. Long before any of us were born, grandfather's pastor came to see him at the shop in the home in Harlem, where we now lived. In their conversation that day, they learned that both had felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and they resolved that morning to do so every day. Since then, at Grandfather's house and at the homes of almost all his descendants in each succeeding generation, ten booms of every size and shape prayed each day for the peace of Jerusalem and for blessing on the Jews. At our home in Harlem, those prayers have been offered continuously each morning after breakfast since 1844. As my treatments with Dr. Trump continued and as I grew stronger, visits to the hospital became shorter. After a month or two, he sent me home with vitamins and liver extract in a bottle. His nurse gave us instructions about how and when to administer it and a journal for Marguerite to make notes of each dosage. After that, morning trips to the hospital were reduced to just three days each week, and then only to allow the nurse to draw blood for the test that monitored my condition. That left more time free with Marguerite. One morning as we returned from the hospital, we passed a shop located a few blocks from the house. We passed it every day, and I had wanted to stop, but there was never time. Now that our trips to the hospital were much quicker, and we had time to go inside. When I suggested it to Marguerite, she readily agreed. This is a great shop, she grinned. You'll love it. As we entered the shop, a man came to the back of the room and approached us with a smile. Marguerite, this is your cousin Betsy? Yes, this is Betsy Timboom. She's visiting us from Harlem. And then she turned to me, Betsy, this is Toma Berman. Berman grasped my hand in his. I'm so glad to finally meet you, he beamed. Welcome to our shop. He gestured with a sweep of his arm. We have beautiful dresses on the rack along the wall, lovely lace on the shelves and back, and in between anything you can imagine. Marguerite wandered to the left, and I wandered to the right, past a table covered with hats and thought of Corey. Even at a young age, she loved hats. Mama and Auntie Anna insisted she wear a bonnet like other girls her age, but Corey had an eye for the hats on the shelf in my room. And when we were there together, I took them down for her to try. Seeing them now in the store and thinking of her brought back many memories. And for the first time since I left home, I was not overwhelmed with sadness. I lingered there a moment and then moved on across the store. As I drew near the first dress rack, Mr. Berman came to my side. If you see anything you like, I can make you a terrific price. Okay, I nodded, but I only had a few coins in my purse. There's no way I could afford even the cheapest of the clothes he had to sell. Marguerite tells me that your father and Garrett are cousins, he continued. Yes, I nodded. Garrett's father and my grandfather were brothers. I did not know these men, he smiled, but your father is the watchmaker, Casper Tenboom. 
The sound of my father's name caught me off guard, and my eyes opened wide. How do you know him? I do not know him personally, but everyone knows about Casper Ten Boom. My brother is neighbors with Gideon Prems. You know Gideon? Oh, Rabbi Prems? Yes, Berman nodded eagerly. You know him? He comes to the shop almost every week to visit with Papa. Gideon grew up near us, Berman added. I see him when I go to Harlem to visit my brother. We made the rounds past all the racks. It was a nice store, but I think Marguerite had no more money to spend than I. So after we made our way around the shop, we said goodbye and started up the sidewalk towards Marguerite's house. As we walked, she glanced over at me. What do you think? Nice store. Yes, he knew who your father was. You told him? I told him you were coming and gave him your name. He asked about your father on his own. I did not know Papa's reputation reached this far. Well, now you see. You aren't so far from home after all. No, I suppose not. He knows Rabbi Prems, too. Yes, Rabbi Prems visits our neighborhood often. You know him? Certainly. Rabbi Prems is one of Papa's best friends, I continued, glad for the chance to talk about familiar things of home. They visit almost every week. I looked up at her and sometimes even pray together. She had an amused smile. You say that as if I should be shocked. Well, sometimes it seems a little strange to me, but most of the time it just seems right. Yes, she nodded. It does. Do you have Jewish friends that you pray with? I do. Sometimes I added, I think Papa is better friends with the Jews than with the Christians. And Rabbi Prims is more of a pastor than the priest at St. Bavos. I don't doubt it, Marguerite laughed. But since you are so much at home here now, I have another friend you should meet. My forehead wrinkled in a frown. Another of Papa's friends? No, she shook her head. Another of my friends. Her name is Anne Selinger. She lives five blocks from here. Then a questioning look came over her. Can you do that? Can you walk that far? Yes, I said confidently. I'm much stronger than when I first came here. I know, but we'll have to climb several flights of stairs. Do you think you can do that too? I can, I nodded. Okay, she sounded less than convinced. If you think you're up to it. I touched her hand. I'll be fine, Marguerite. She is sick, and I've been taking food to her. You sound like Mama. She's always taking food to the neighbors. Sometimes all we have is bread and coffee, but she takes soup to our friends. Good, then, she said with a laugh. Since you're experienced at this, you can help me prepare the food. Back at the house, Marguerite and I worked together in the kitchen, cutting the meat and vegetables for the soup, then baking bread while the soup pot simmered on the stove. When everything was ready, we poured the soup into a serving bowl, wrapped the bowl in a clean towel, and set it in a large picnic basket. We took the bread from the oven, covered it with a separate cloth, and tucked it beside the warm soup bowl. Then, with Marguerite leading the way, we started on the five-block walk from the house to Anne's apartment. At first, I had no trouble keeping up, but the further we went, the more tired I became. My strength lasted longer than before, but even so, by the time we reached the apartment building, I wondered if I could make it up the stairs. Marguerite must have wondered, too, because she glanced back at me with a worried look. I can take this up to her on my own if you need to wait here. No, I said insistently, gesturing with my hand for her to continue. I'll be fine. An amused grin spread across her face. We used to see your father often when we were younger. This is how I remember him. How? Just like you, she said playfully. 
I held the door open as Marguerite entered with the basket, and then I followed her down the front hall to the stairway and started up behind her. With each step up the stairs, my legs grew heavier and heavier, but I made it to the second floor, and we paused there so I could catch my breath. This is good exercise, I said. Marguerite wasn't convinced. Exercise isn't your problem. No, but I am much stronger than I was before. Last year I could not have made it to the corner past your house, much less this far. After a moment to rest, we continued up the next flight. I was glad when Marguerite paused at the landing and turned down the hall. She paused at the third door and rapped on it with her knuckle. We waited patiently while someone inside unlocked it. When the door opened at last, a frail, thin woman appeared. She had large, sad eyes that seemed to sink into their sockets. Beneath them, her cheeks were hollow, and the paper-thin skin along her jaw pulled tight against the bone. By the slump of her shoulders, I knew she was too tired to stand. But when she saw Marguerite, a smile came onto her face. Her eyes brightened, and color returned to her cheeks. Marguerite, she exclaimed, I was hoping to see you. She stepped aside to let us pass, and then closed the door behind us. Marguerite walked to the kitchen table and set the basket there. Anne, still standing near the door, looked at me with a curious smile. So you're the cousin from Harlem? Yes, I nodded. I'm Betsy. You look just the way Marguerite described you, she replied, and then her eyes fell on the basket, and she brushed past me towards the table. A row of cabinets lined the wall to the left above a counter with a small sink. Marguerite opened a door near the far end and reached inside for a soup bowl. In the drawer beneath the counter, she found a spoon and a ladle. While Anne took a seat at the table, Marguerite set the bowl and spoon before her, opened the basket, and lifted the lid of the serving bowl. Using the ladle, she dipped the soup from it and filled the smaller soup bowl. Then we both took a seat and watched while Anne ate. Didn't take long. As she scooped the last spoonful from the bottom of the bowl, Anne looked at me. Betsy, your cousin Marguerite has kept me alive. Since I was near death's door and twice she appeared in the nick of time with a basket of food. You're not going to die, Marguerite said with a chuckle. You're just hungry. And sick, Anne added quickly. And that won't last forever either. Anne smiled at me. Are you as optimistic as she is? I'm trying, I answered. Good. Anne reached out her hand and rested on Marguerite's arm. Because the world needs more people like my friend Marguerite. She looked across at me again. You be a friend like that to someone, too, you hear? Yes, ma'am, I nodded. I will. After Anne had a second bowl, she and Marguerite began talking about people in the neighborhood. I knew little of the things they discussed, but sat quietly listening to their conversation. As they talked, I glanced around the apartment. It was sparsely furnished with a single chair by the front window. Next to it was a table with a lamp, but there was no sofa. In fact, there was nothing else in the room at all, not even pictures on the walls. Then I noticed a lamp on the table by the chair had no oil. A glance toward the ceiling told me the apartment wasn't wired for electricity either. Sunlight through the windows must have provided enough for Anne to see during most of the day. But as the afternoon grew late and the summer flight faded, the room would become dark. A damp chill hung in the air, and I remembered Marguerite had not lit the stove to warm the soup. Conversation between them lagged, and Marguerite ladled the last of the soup into the soup bowl and set the bread on the plate. It was still wrapped in cloth, just as it was when we packed it from the house. 
Then a few minutes later, we returned the serving bowl to the basket and started towards the door. When we were downstairs on the street, I asked Marguerite about what I'd seen. No, she replied. Anne does not have gas or electricity. That apartment would get rather cold at night. That's part of the reason she's sick. Does she have water? Yes, though I'm not sure why or how. Doesn't she have relatives who can give her a better place to live? I suppose, but I don't know who or where they are. We have Mama's sister living with us, and there was a time when we had all her sisters. I think Anne prefers being on her own, even if her conditions are less than the best. The Jews seem to be always struggling. That's a part of their history. What do you mean? Since the Middle Ages, they have been the object of hatred, sometimes by workers who see competition for their jobs as a threat. I think that's how they wound up confined to this neighborhood. You mean they can't live anywhere else? Perhaps in Amsterdam, but not in other places. I don't understand how people could treat them like that. I think they're just afraid, she paused a moment, as if in thought, and then she said, or they might just be mean. We laughed together, and then I added, all I know is Papa says we should pray for the peace in Jerusalem and for a blessing on the Jews, and that's what we do. And that's a good way to look at it. Next time will be Chapter 5. We'll find out what happens. I love you. I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.